Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Well, welcome back to the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. We're also resident on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. And you can find us wherever podcasts are found. And before we begin, it would uh, it would help us a lot if you've been enjoying the content of this podcast that uh, that we put out. Leave us a rating, leave us a review. That means a lot. It helps us to uh, to get the word out to a larger audience and produce more content like this. We really appreciate it. Before, no, not before we begin. Now. Now, we're beginning now. Uh, my guest today is Andre Schutten. Andre is going to be no stranger to those of you who listen regularly. He's been on the show a couple of times before. Andre is Ezra Institute Fellow for Law and Civil Discourse. And this week, he is down on the ground in Golden, British Columbia, uh, bringing some lectures to the students at the Runner Academy. Andre, thanks for making time in the day to, uh, to have this conversation. Yeah, so good to be uh, on the podcast again, Ryan. Thank you. Nope, my pleasure. Appreciate you being here. So, Andre, uh, one of the uh, one of the lectures that uh, that you were bringing to the students at the Runner Academy, and that I wanted to uh, to dig into a little bit here, is this theme of the Western constitutional heritage, mm-hmm. and the uh, the sort of the entry point that. Uh, that I wanted to get into is everyone knows that we have a constitution. Maybe we remember from, uh, from our high school civics class, roughly sort of the structure of what a constitution is, but maybe you could just walk us through why the constitution is a part of our heritage, uh, as a nation, as a culture, as a society and what it, uh, what it is designed to do. Uh, and maybe maybe a reflection on how well it's doing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, um, well, I'd say that uh, the reality is when you look at uh, governments or rulers of peoples uh, around the globe and throughout human history, the reality is, is that we see what Lord Acton has, has said uh, famously that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, Mm. and so um, when a single person uh, is given a whole lot of power, particularly absolute power or ultimate power in a people group or in a nation or in a, in a region of the world, then that, uh, because of the nature of man uh, in his fallen state, then that person will inevitably abuse that power. It is a, a very rare thing. Um, In fact, I don't know if, a single human example of the um, abstract concept of the benevolent dictator that they just don't exist because um, human nature is, is fallen. We are um, tainted by sin. And, and so a sinful human being given absolute power uh, will, will abuse that power. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the whole history of the development of constitutionalism is, is one that is peculiar to a particular uh, culture and, and religious culture, uh, that being the Judeo-Christian uh, culture. It's out of that culture and not out of uh, any other that you get this idea or the development of 
of constitutionalism. And the, and the basic idea behind a constitution is that the law is something distinct from the ruler's whims. The law is something distinct from the ruler's whims. And, and you need to have that principle in place um, in order to have things like the protection of human rights, uh, in order to have uh, the rule of law, and in order to have uh, freedom and liberty uh, in order for various other sectors of society, the non-civil government sectors of society, to be able to, to flourish and pursue the callings and responsibilities that they have uh, from God. And so when we look at the English uh, constitutional um, history, that, and that's really where you see it uh, in, the, in the biggest way, is in England and the, the English uh, tradition, legal tradition, that's where it really, really comes to the fore. And, and coming out of that tradition, we see that uh, constitutionalism uh, in England and then from there into the United States and, and Canada and Australia uh, and other Commonwealth countries. We see that those, those countries that have those constitutions, generally speaking, do uh, much better than other, than other countries do. They uphold the rule of law, they protect liberty, and they're more stable and accountable governments than almost any other, uh, I would say, more stable, more accountable than any other government in the history of the world. Um, uh, in particular, having proper checks and balances on uh, state authority. That's the big, that's the big key. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, we could, we could walk through that history a little bit uh, together. Um, I, I find it to be a fascinating history, uh, an interesting history. Uh, happy to, to touch on that. Um, if you want, where, where would you want me to start, uh, Ryan? What do you think? Well, actually, I, uh, I wouldn't mind doing that either. I agree. It is a really interesting history, but, and maybe we can table this, uh, but uh, one thing that you said right there when you were listing a few of the, uh, the countries where constitutionalism has really taken root and led to a thriving nation, uh, mm -hmm. with, the, uh, with the obvious exception of England, where it began, all of those mm -hmm. nations uh, do not have an established church. And mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that's something that uh, that you've reflected on or looked into. Uh, but at uh, after hearing you, I'm I'm guessing that it's not a coincidence that those two things are are both occurring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that um, uh, I mean it, it would be undeniable, I think, to any legal historian that all of the nations uh, England, United States, Canada, Australia. Um, and other Commonwealth nations that they have at least the Christian presuppositions behind them. There's a there's a Christian or a Judeo-Christian uh, worldview or understanding of reality that has informed their legal history, right. and so it's built on that foundation. Their their development of the of of the Constitution in those countries would be built on um, on a Judeo-Christian Western um, legal philosophical heritage. Um, and so, uh, while the the UK and Britain or England they have the established Church of the Church of England or Anglicanism, uh, that's the preferred or state sponsored uh, Christian denomination in that country and has been since uh, basically since the Glorious Revolution of 1688. Mm -hmm. um, other other nations, particularly the United States, uh, which has explicitly rejected the idea of a particular state church at the federal level, although some of the states, some of the colonies and, and various states did have um, 
established churches uh, from state to state. Some had them, some didn't. Uh, but definitely at the federal level, they said uh, we won't have that. Uh, in the in in Canada, um, there uh, there were. Uh, it's it's a bit more nuanced than that. There definitely is not a state church or, or wasn't an official state church, but um, in in Canada, like in Quebec, the province of Quebec, in through its history, you know, the Roman Catholic Church was was kind of recognized as the leading non-government institution in that province. There was right. no other institution in that province that had um, that came close to it, uh, besides maybe the civil government itself. And then uh, same thing historically in Upper Canada, which became uh, Ontario, um, you know, Anglicanism would, would have been the, the dominant um, uh, denomination, but but there was definitely other denominations that could also uh, flourish, a, a lot of them being the, the types that made up the religious dissenters in, in England, um, you know, during the 1600s and, and 1700s, uh, you know, Puritan, uh, Puritans, Baptists, um, and, and others. So. Um, but but all of that to say, even even if there isn't a, a an established church, there was nevertheless, you know, um, a majority of, of of Christians of people coming out of the Christian tradition, were, um, and they were people who 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 as they wrote their laws and, and crafted their constitutions and shaped their governments and shaped society around them and their culture, they were um, they were taking their Christian um, convictions and and putting them to work in these various institutions and spheres of, of life. Um, so whether or not there's an established church is, is perhaps not, uh, not really the question so much as what is the religion of the people. Uh, and, and I would say there's no, there is a, it's more than a coincidence that the religion of the people in constitutional um, uh, governments has historically been Judeo-Christian. Right. No, that's a, that's a useful distinction. Um, yeah, Andre, maybe you could uh, you could walk us through a little bit in a little bit more detail uh, some of the history of constitutionalism, mm -hmm. and uh, then move on uh, to where we are now. And uh, I'm I'm not sure if it's too extreme to say that constitutionalism uh, is under attack, but we seem to the the fact that we that we have and that you you're identifying a constitutional heritage uh, mm. is suggestive that we we have something that we need to defend or recover or mm -hmm. appreciate in a in a way that we have not done so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well let let me start then with a bit of uh, history and and then let's loop back to that that second part there because. Yeah, I would agree. I think I think you've you've got it. That's what I, where I would go is to say that um, our the average citizen in Canada, and I think this is probably true, though to a lesser extent in the United States, and uh, similarly with uh, with Britain or the UK. Um, certainly in Canada, the average citizen is is pretty ignorant of, uh, and I don't mean that to you know to be slamming my fellow citizens. It's it's just a fact of of life. They they are unaware of. And maybe that's a more charitable way of putting it. They're unaware of um, our constitutional history, or it's it's how we how we got the government that we have, and uh, they're unaware of its importance. And and that, that has something to do with the state of uh, public education in this country. You know, I think uh, in the province where where I grew up in, in Ontario, 
you know, the only civics class that you had to do was a half credit course in grade 10. And, and that was about it. And I, you know, that that's, that's a woefully inadequate uh, amount of education when it comes to civics. I think um, Christian citizenship or citizenship in general uh, requires a much more um, engaged citizenry where citizens take their responsibility or their office of citizenship much more seriously. And, and part of that means learning about our history uh, so that we don't repeat the mistakes of history and that we uh, embrace and cherish the, the big wins and, and the good developments of history. So, yeah, let's go back in time. I mean, I, I think if you go back, I mean, we could go way, way, way back in time, but it, probably the, a good place to start would be 1215 AD in, in uh, England. So around 1215, yeah. you have King John on the throne of England. Um, so he's the brother of Richard the Lionheart from the uh, Robin Hood tales. Right. And King John, for any uh, boy who's read the Robin Hood stories, knows that King John is a bad king, right? Bad king. And the reason he's bad is because he acts in the tradition of the kings that came before him, uh, which is that he is the living law. Anything that comes out of his mouth is law, whatever whatever he says and wants that's just the way it is. And, and the people who are under him are his subjects and servants and, and, uh, and they are treated by the king as his, yeah, his, as his vassals and, and almost as if they're his, his slaves. Um, and that, yeah, that was, that was kind of standard fare in, in, in many respects. Um, although, uh, in England there, there was, um, there was already beginning a tradition of, uh, over the course of a few hundred years, um, going back even further to King Alfred the Great, who had incorporated the Ten Commandments into the law code of England um, in the late 900s. And, and from there, there had developed this, this understanding, like, look, even the king should be uh, respecting certain norms, certain legal constraints. Uh, you know, he can't, he can't just be a total absolute tyrant. And so um, eventually, if, if we go back to King John then, he was abusing his power so much that that uh, not only the barons uh, rose up against him, but also clergy and the merchant class and even the peasants rose up rose up against King John. He was um, he would kill his political enemies or assassinate them. He would seize property and money. He would raise taxes without uh, any sort of input or consent from from barons or others. Uh, he was he was a despot, and so. Um, Particularly, the barons rise up against him, and and there's this uh, civil war, and there's there's this tension between the king and his subjects, and and King John uh, comes to realize in 1215 that he's losing that battle, and and he agrees that he will sit down and negotiate, and the one who who acts as mediator between the barons and and King John is in fact the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langdon. That's right. And Stephen Langdon crafts this uh, charter. It's called the Magna Carta. And it's a it's an agreement, it's an understanding, a legal document between the barons and the king that imposes legal limits on the king. Uh, and a number of those are very, very important. Uh, the first clause of the Magna Carta guarantees the independence of the church. The king can't interfere in the you know the selection of bishops or or, or priests within the within the church at the time. Um, and other clauses require fair and impartial. Uh, uh, trials in court for anyone charged with a crime. Um, and uh, another important point is that the, the king needs to consult with the, the barons before he starts raising taxes. Uh, so all of this is putting uh, in the Magna Carta is putting legal limits on the king. And so the, the Latin phrase that comes out of this is lex rex. Lex is, is Latin for law. 
and Rex is Latin for king. So Lex Rex is that the law is king. Uh, whereas up until this point, the, the common understanding was was just that well, the way things are is that the king is the law, Rex is Lex. Right. Um, and so we get here with King John for the not not necessarily for the first time in, in English history, but but it's a it's a momentous moment because we get it written down in this great charter, the Magna Carta, where where there's now this this document, this this legal code which people can point to and say, this is actually above the king. The king is now subject to the law. He's under the law. He's not over it. He's not above it. And so um, so I think that's a, like a, a, a monumental moment in the history of constitutional law that, that you know, every Canadian citizen should know about, um, that our rulers are not above the law. They have to be under the law. Uh, they have to be subject to the law just like everyone else is, uh, that the law is more than the king or the ruler's whims. So um, now, now King John, like he, he tries to get out of that Magna Carta within months. He he tries to get it annulled <laughs> by the Pope, and and England's plunged into civil war again. And uh, I mean that ends uh, shortly thereafter because uh, poor King John, he he dies of excessive diarrhea, and um, and uh, and that ends the civil war. So that's good. But that then his son, who's still a young a boy, I think he's his son is Henry the Third. I think he's he's nine or eleven years old or something like that. And he, so he's put on the throne. And in order for him to stay on the throne, that king is told by the barons, it's like, you need to reassert or you need to reconfirm Magna Carta. And so he does. And in fact, he has a long reign. He reigns, reigns for about 50 years, 53 years, something like that. And, and over the course of that reign, every time he wants to raise taxes, the barons tell him, okay, well, reaffirm Magna Carta, reaffirm Magna Carta. You are under the law. And the king would do that over and over again. And over the course of the next uh, 250 or 300 years, uh, the various kings of England continue to do that, where they, if they want to raise taxes or they want to impose a new um, uh, rule or, or impose on their people in any way, or they want to declare war on France or whatever, uh, the barons and others would say, well, reaffirm your commitment to Magna Carta, reaffirm it. And so it, it gets reaffirmed over and over again. And, and it becomes the core of constitutional law that the king is subject to the law in some respects. Anyway, and then you, if you fast forward to another big moment in constitutional development, you jump forward to the uh, the reign of the, the Stuart kings. So the Stuart kings are James I, James, uh, James I, Charles I, and then James the, uh, or Charles II, and then James II in, in the in the 1600s. Right. So James I comes on the throne in 1601, and the Stuarts reign for the rest of that century, more or less. Um, and, and James I, he has this idea known as the divine right of kings, the divine right of kings. And it's an idea where he's figured out for himself that what scripture requires or, or what scripture puts forward is this idea that the king, because he's appointed as God's representative on earth, he's the ultimate authority over all things. And the only person that the king is accountable to is God himself. No one else can can challenge the king or hold him accountable because the king only answers to God. And and of course, that's not what scripture teaches uh, at all. Um, but it's it's this this new twist on the absolute authority of kings. And, it, and it's basically the ideas of of the older kings like King John, where he had absolute power. But he King John asserted his absolute power through through the force of his will. Uh, now uh, what we have is this, uh, you know poorly baptized idea of the divine right of kings where 
But now the king is still trying to assert or reassert or newly assert his, his absolute authority, but now he's trying to baptize it with scripture to say, oh, look, look at this verse or that verse from scripture, you know, Romans 13 or um, passages about uh, King Saul in the Old Testament where James, James I says, look, uh, the only person I answer to is God and God alone and nobody else can ever challenge anything I say, anything I do, uh, because uh, they're not, they don't rise to the rank that I'm at. Anyway, so, so of course, like, again, what Lord Acton said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know, we, we can't entrust that kind of power to a single person, even if he is the king. And, and, and so unsurprisingly, James I starts abusing his, his power. Um, and so he starts, but, but by now, Parliament has actually uh, grown in its influence and its, um, and its role in government in England in the, in the early 1600s. Mm-hmm. And, and so they start pushing back. They, they push back and the courts have, are taking a bigger role at this time and they start pushing back. Um, but by the time we get to, so James I dies and his son Charles I takes the throne, we get um, that that king as well. It really digs in his heels and he really asserts this idea of the divine right of kings and it, and it doesn't go well at all. So so Charles I, what he starts doing is, is he's, he, he spends lots and lots of money. He's very extravagant, very rich clothing. He throws lavish parties. He, he bestows all kinds of expensive gifts on his friends and, and those who support him. And so Parliament, uh, up until now, uh, the king always needed consent from Parliament to raise taxes or to get his money. And Parliament eventually says, no, we're not giving it to you anymore. You've got a spending problem, so knock it off. We're not giving you any more money. Yeah. And yeah. King Charles, he, he figures, well... Um, you know, with the divine right of kings, I, I get to do what I want. Who are you, Parliament, to be, uh, you know, limiting my my powers um, and questioning the way I spend my money and so on? And so he's he's a pretty devious guy, and he's, he figures, well, I can I can raise money in other ways. So the first thing he does, or one of the things he does, is he imposes a loan on uh, on the gentry, uh, so knights and barons and uh, dukes and earls and so on. And he imposes this loan. He says, you all have to loan me money. It's mandatory. And if you don't loan me the money, I'm going to throw you in jail. Um, uh, and you know, I may or may not, not pay it back, but you know, I'm the king. So you should, you should be able to trust me that I, that I might pay it back one day. And so there's five knights who say, well, well, that's not a loan. That's a tax. Uh, and you're not allowed to raise taxes without parliament's consent. So we refuse on principle to loan you this money because you know, it's it, you're forcing us to, and and uh, and we don't even know if we're going to get the money back. And so the king does what the king does, which is round up those five um, knights and throws them in jail. But when uh, those knights plead to the court to say, "Hey, like we've been unjustly imprisoned," the king uses his influence on the court to uh, to get them to rule in his favor. And so those knights are left in in jail for quite a while. Now those light, knights also happen to sit in the House of Commons. And so uh, Parliament is very upset with the king over this, uh, and and there's extreme tension between Parliament and the king. Um, but even so, the king blindly keeps on doing what he's doing. He he you know collects these loans, but still runs out of money. And so he imposes another form of a tax, um, which is called the ship money uh, tax or the ship money fee. And so uh, what happens in England around this time is. The king was allowed to, by his prerogative, he was allowed to impose something called a ship money tax in times of emergency, so that is war, in times of war, that king could, could impose this levy on the coastal um, communities. And he would use that money on those coastal communities to help 
raise money and then build ships for war to defend the island, right? Defend England from foreign aggressors, whether that was Spain or France uh, or, or the Netherlands. You know, that's how we would raise money to build ships to defend England in a time of emergency. Well, what he decided to do is like say, well, it's my prerogative as the king to, to, to determine whether or not there's an emergency at all and what level of threat that emergency poses. And nobody can question me on that. And furthermore, nobody can question my antics during that time of emergency because I'm the king. I have the royal prerogative. I have the divine right as a king. And so he declared there's an emergency, even though there was no emergency. There was no war going on. And he then imposes this ship money tax, not only on the coastal regions, but he imposes it as well on uh, every single community across the country, whether they're on the coast or not. And, and, uh, and this ends up going to court because uh, Parliament says, you know, what, what in the world is going on? You can't just declare an emergency, make one up. That has to be subject to, uh, to reality. Like we should be able to <laughs> be able to say whether or not there is in fact an emergency. Nobody's going to go for this. You, yeah. Yeah. Is this sounding familiar at all? <laughs> uh, and furthermore, it's not, uh, uh, you know, we should be able to see how you're spending that money. Are you collecting that money and just putting it in your own coffers for your own big parties and your lavish spending? Or are you actually spending it on warships in order to defend England in a time of war? Uh, and the king refused to uh, to submit to that kind of scrutiny and and accountability to Parliament, and so it goes to court. And again, the king uses his his influence in the court to get a majority of the judges to rule in his favor. And that's kind of one of the last straws that breaks the uh, the camel's back, so to speak. And and England ends up descending into civil war. The Parliament raises an army to fight against the king and his army. And, uh, and and there's a brutal, brutal civil war in England from, from 1642 to 1651. And the end result of that war is that King Charles loses. And, and because he's a very conniving king, he continues to try to stir up internal strife and rebellion. And he refuses over and over again to submit to limits on his power as Parliament asks him to. In the end, Parliament actually puts him on trial for treason. They find him guilty and they execute him. He's the only king in the entire history of England was ever executed by his people, which is pretty remarkable. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a really big, big moment in constitutional history as well, uh, because out of the Civil War, uh, we it, it ends up, I, I mean, there's way more to it, of course, but, but it ends up leading to, um, uh, in 1688, it leads to what's called the, the Glorious Revolution. And the Glorious Revolution um, uh, basically... Uh, it's a response to this kind of this tyrannical um, and dictatorial um, uh, natural inclination of kings. And so, um, yeah, Charles I, he loses his head. There's a, there's a period of about 12 years where England tries to, to rule their country without a king at all. It doesn't go so well. Um, and so, so Parliament ends up calling back King Charles I's son to sit on the throne, Charles II. Charles II reigns for, for about 25 years, and then his brother, James II, rules for about three years. But both of them, you know, are, are pretty cruel and uh, deceitful and um, yeah, tyrannical tendencies, especially James II. And so Parliament's like, we're not doing this again. We just fought this bloody civil war over this uh, a couple of decades ago. We can't put up with this uh, all over again. And so they, they dethrone um, James II, and they call over... William III, Prince of Orange, from the Netherlands to come sit on the throne of England. But, and this is the important part, in 1688, Parliament calls King King uh, William to come to the throne on conditions. 
and they set out those conditions in what's now known as the Bill of Rights 1689. And, and basically they say, we, we, we Parliament call you to come sit on our throne, but you will be responsible to us. Um, and so, you know, you have money to spend, you are going to govern this country day to day through your, you know, all of your officers and so on. But you have to respond, you, you are responsible to us as Parliament, we are going to um, you know, any laws have to be made, have to be deliberated by Parliament. Any tax um, increases have to be uh, approved by Parliament. And how you spend your money is going to have to be vetted by Parliament. And that's how we get the principle of responsible government. That's how we get the the limits on the on the powers of the of the monarch. And and we've had basically we've enjoyed we basked in the glow of the glorious revolution now for over three hundred years. That glorious revolution, sixteen eighty eight. Um, that's basically reaffirmed in the American context 100 years later in 1776 with the American Revolution. It's uh, reaffirmed in the Canadian Constitution of 16 uh, of 1867. Um, so, so the Glorious Revolution, you know, every 100 years or so, it, it gets reasserted in the American Revolution and their um, Declaration of Independence, their Constitution, in Canada's Constitution of 1680, uh, uh, 18 sorry 1867 uh, when Canada became a country. Um, and that that's our heritage. That's that's where we've come uh, from ourselves. And in fact, our Supreme Court of Canada in in Canada has said that that when Canada became a country in 1867, we incorporate all of that constitutional history into our constitution as well. So the idea and the principle of responsible government of limits on the authority of the ruler, uh, that's our our heritage too, and it should be informing our governments. Uh, today, but of course, um, you know, as we just had a bit of a chuckle about, uh, it seems like not only our citizens have forgotten this history, but our um, but our governments have also our governments have forgotten this history, and um, sadly, even our judges and our lawyers have forgotten this history. Hmm. It, uh, see, it it sounds like the way you're describing it the uh, the English Civil War and the Glorious Revolution. They were they were efforts at recovering that uh, that earlier Magna Carta constitutionalism. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. I mean, it's 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 growing, it's developing. It um, you know, like it's a it is a really good good history. And and, and I think I, I would I guess I'd commend a book to our our listeners if you want you want a good history of of all of this development. Ryan Elford. Uh, has written a book called Seven Absolute Rights. It was just published a, a year or two ago, uh, a couple of years ago, and and it's uh, it's fantastic. It it lays out this history in, in great detail. But yeah, like Magna Carta is 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 a, a relatively brief legal document from 1215, but but there's principles in there that need to be fleshed out um, every few decades or or even centuries, where where it's like, okay, here, here's a legal concept. This is what we mean by it. It's it's limited government or limited, um, let's limit the absolute authority of the king. Well, then that, that goes well for a little while. And then, and then the king tries to abuse it. And so there's another crisis. And then mm-hmm. uh, again, they have to reassert, it's like, okay, well, what we actually mean by this clause or that clause, or the king has been able to, to squeeze out of this one by, by doing this or that. Okay. Well, let's reassert Magna Carta, but let's also add another limit on the king's, um, authority by, by passing a statute or, um, by by doing X or Y, and so um, so that happens on and off from 1215 all the way to 16, uh, yeah 1688, 
where, where every once in a while, every few decades or a century or so, there's a there's a crisis that happens. There's a constitutional crisis that happens between the king and parliament, or between the king and the people. Um, and and that those kinds of crises um, have historically produced clarity in our constitution. And and that's why, like today, I mean, and we can talk about what's happened to the Canadian constitution with with the uh, addition of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in in 1982, but but I think what's happened just in the last few years with this whole emergency power, and I think the abuse of emergency power over the last couple of years, I would hope that that would produce a constitutional crisis. That that the outcome of it becomes that we say, wait a second, there's been a there's been abuse of power going on here. So how can we clarify things in our law to make sure that we don't allow that kind of abuse of power in the future? Um, but in order for that to happen. In order for that to happen, the citizens have to care enough to say, wait a second, we've been abused, <laughs> that there's been abuse of power. And I'm not sure that that has happened. I'm not sure there's enough citizens to say we care. We care enough about this. Whereas there was, there were citizens in 1688 who said that. There were parliamentarians in 1688 who saw that and saw the need for that. And that's why I'd say an important thing about constitutionalism is the Constitution is necessary to guarantee uh, rights and freedoms, but is not sufficient. It's not enough to have a constitution to guarantee um, uh, the flourishing of, of various institutions in society. It's not enough to have a constitution to guarantee rights and freedoms in a, in a country. You also need a culture of freedom, a culture of uh, accountable government. And, and who or what informs that culture? I would say that's what brings us back to the beginning of our conversation, which is uh, the Judeo-Christian worldview produces a culture or should produce a culture where we say, wait a second, we don't want absolute authority in a single person because absolute authority or absolute power corrupts absolutely. So uh, we need to differentiate power. We need to separate power. Um, mm. and, and we need to put limits on human power. Otherwise, it will be abused. Right. So let's uh, let's see if we can see what we can do, if we can do our part to to help some of the citizens care a little bit more and, and uh, shake a few people up. Uh, I think uh, you mentioned uh, ignorance or unawareness early on about constitutionalism generally. Mm -hmm. in, the, in these past couple of years, uh, what, are, what are some of the... So more, get, let's get more specific on what, mm -hmm. what are some of the abuses of power? Uh, not just mm -hmm. things that might make us mad, but things that are actually illegal or, you know, weaselly, uh, le legal in just in a weaselly kind of way that, uh, sure. that we should be pushing back against. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe I'll, uh, if we have time, I'll try to run through three, three examples, one from, one from BC, one from Ontario and one at the federal level. Perfect. So the, the, B, the BC example I'll give, um, is, uh, in, in British Columbia during the, the pandemic, uh, during the first wave of the pandemic, the public health officer there um, uh, did not shut down churches completely, which were shut down in, in most other provinces. Right. Um, so in BC, the public health officer said, you can still meet in groups of 50, uh, but, but you know, try to, you know, maintain physical distance, and all this kind of stuff, but you can meet in groups of 50. And, and, there was allowed to be creativity around that. So, for example, a large church 
could could split their huge auditorium in half and then use a balcony and and use the front foyer of the church and they could have maybe three or four groups of 50 in the church at the same time but in in separate areas of the church and and so a lot of the churches were able to to work with that in british columbia during the first wave but but in a perplexing uh decision the public health officer in in the second wave uh made this this bizarre uh order that shut down all of the churches completely, even though she permitted all kinds of other activities to continue. So, right. so in the second wave, from November of 2020 until uh, it lasted for quite a long time, until about May of 2021, in in British Columbia, you could you could go indoor swimming with people. You could have an indoor business meeting with up to 50 people, even though Zoom was invented for business meetings and not for church services. Right. Um, you could go to the pub and sit around a table with a bunch of buddies for hours on end. You could go to the restaurant with a restaurant, sit indoors and dine with a whole ton of other people. There was no um, no real capacity limit in that sense. There was you could go and watch the hockey game at the, at the local bar and pound back beer and cheer on your favorite hockey team uh, indoors. No problem. No limit on. Uh, no limit on time indoors. There's no masking requirement if you're eating or drinking. Um, all of that was okay, but you could not meet even outdoors, even with just 10 people to have a worship service, even for less than an hour at a time. It made absolutely no sense. Um, it was, it was a totally irrational, uh, decision. And yet the charter of rights and freedom says right there, right at the beginning of the charter, it says everyone has the following fundamental freedoms, freedom of conscience and religion. Freedom of peaceful assembly. It's like, like, like. What about the right, the, the the guarantee of the charter that you have a right to religious assembly? It's right there. It's protected by not just one, but two different clauses in the in the um, in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So this got taken to court, and the Chief Justice of the BC Supreme Court, he was the judge who ends up hearing this case, and he rules in the end. Well, it was reasonable. You know, there's a pandemic going on, and so it's reasonable. With the we, we just got to trust the public health officer. Uh, she's the expert. We got to trust if she said there's an emergency, and that's where I, it makes it reminds me of the abuse of the emergency power by King Charles I, who lost his head. Right. Um, yeah. It's not enough for our rulers, for our, the executive branch of government. It's not enough for them to declare an emergency. It's got to be verifiable, and by her own actions. Bonnie Henry, who's the, the public health officer in BC, by her own actions, by her own rules, if you're if it's safe enough to go sit in a pub, pound back beers and eat wings for three hours at a time with your buddies while watching the hockey game, then surely it's safe enough to have the same amount of people inside of a church uh, once uh, uh, once a week to sit respectfully and, and sing and worship and and uh, take the sacraments and so on. Or, you know, like like it's it's patently absurd to to say uh, otherwise. And what did our judge do in BC? He said, "Oh no, well she's the public health officer. She's the expert. It it must be an emergency. She said so, uh, even though it was obviously contradictory to her other parts of her her order." So so that's one example of of an abuse of power. Uh, and not has, nearly has there been any rose up against that. Has there been any accountability? Uh, any uh, any work to to bring accountability to that situation? Um, so, so that court case did get appealed. So it's now it's now actually under consideration by the BC Court of Appeal. So who knows? Well, like we're waiting for a decision from the BC Court of Appeal, and and my hope 
and prayer is that that court uh, overturns the lower court and says, yeah, this is this is absurd. This is over the top. Um, but 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 there's no there's no outcry among the population in BC. I mean, there's small pockets of out, of, of outcry or of um, anger about this. But but the vast majority of the population, including many Christians and even Christian leaders, have said, well, look, there's a there's an emergency going on. So. So it's it's selfish for us to want to worship um, is is the kind of line that you start to hear um, that wouldn't have happened in 1688. Uh, that right. wouldn't have happened, frankly, in 1982. I think Christian leaders would have been able to use common sense, look around them, and say, "Well, wait a second. If that you know if that large group of frat boys over there are pounding back beers at the pub for six nights a week, um, why in the world can't we worship the living God in whose hands all of this lies?" Uh, why can't we worship the living God uh, carefully, respectfully, and so on um, at the same time, right? So, um, you know, we, we've, I think citizens have abdicated their responsibility as citizens to think for themselves and to reason for themselves and then to to engage, right? That just hasn't happened. Um, yeah, so that's a BC an example. Uh, uh, an Ontario example would be um, where... Uh, after the first wave of the COVID pandemic, um, you know, was starting to peter out in in June of of 2020, um, Premier Ford, who's, who's the Premier of Ontario, so he he's the head of the executive branch of government. Right. So that would be equivalent to the role of the king, if we're thinking back to the Glorious Revolution of 1688. Um, so so Premier Ford, he's he's the head of the executive branch of government, and and but that also means he's the he's the leader of the uh, conservative uh, party in Ontario as well, and and so they they table legislation called the Reopening Ontario Act, and um, and what happens though is that the legislature, um, which is made up of a majority of, of members of the Conservative Caucus, they they fail to understand that they're a legislature, right? They're not that that they're the ones to whom the government is responsible, right? Um, so. In, in Glorious Revolution, we get this concept of responsible government. The executive is is answerable to. They have to answer to, um, uh, or sorry, yeah, they have to answer to to Parliament. They have to report to Parliament. Parliament is the check on the power of the executive. Um, well, this is what happens in Ontario. Premier Ford he, he tables this legislation called the Reopening Ontario Act, and in it they declare that the emergency is over. It's like, okay, that's good. But at the same time, they say, but we're going to maintain all of our emergency power. Right. So yeah. that's absolutely crazy. Like you can't say in one breath, in the same legal document, the emergency is over. And at the same time say, and we're going to maintain our emergency power. That's crazy. Like the whole point about declaring an emergency is that it does give the executive extraordinary powers, but they have to report back to the legislature every week or two weeks. And that's, that's the check on the emergency power. But but what they've done is they say, oh, no, the emergency is over. So we don't have to report back to the legislature. We don't have to operate responsible government where we report to the legislature and say, OK, this is how we're using our extraordinary emergency power. No, they they, they pass this law and then they whip the vote of the PC caucus of, of the conservative members and say, you must vote to support this law. And and they, you know, all, all but one of the members of the caucus go along with it. They, they allow, they grant to the executive branch, they give them emergency power without the, the check and balance of, of responsible government, of requiring the executive to report back to the legislature 
every week or two mm-hmm. to see how they're using that emergency power. That that should have been a scandal, and it would have been if our citizens in the province of Ontario knew even a little bit about our constitutional history. But that's just not taught. It's not taught to our citizens. It's not even taught in law school. Like like I'm a lawyer. I went through three years of law school. I was never taught about the Glorious Revolution. I was never taught about the English Civil War. I was never taught about the abuse of emergency power by King Charles I and why he lost his head. Is that right? Man. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, and then I, I guess the, the last example would be, uh, at the federal level, would be um, there was a, there is a, uh, a lab, a, a, like a medical research lab in Winnipeg. It's the only uh, tier four research lab in, in Canada Tier four is just is is the, the highest security level for a, a medical research lab. So they're dealing with the the most dangerous uh, viruses and and they're doing the most dangerous experiments and so on. So it's a very high, highly secure um, uh, medical lab research lab, and it's it's owned and operated and, and funded obviously by the federal government. Mm-hmm. And just before COVID broke out, there were two Chinese scientists, Chinese-Canadian scientists, who were fired abruptly from that lab, and, and they returned to China. And so this, this fact came out in, um, during, during COVID that, that this had happened. And so Parliament asked the executive branch of government, which would be the branch of government that was also operating this lab, to report to Parliament what in the world happened there. Like, it seemed all shrouded in secrecy. So he's like, what, what's going on? You know, we're in the middle of this pandemic. Uh, something happened in our highest security lab. People were sent back to China who were working in our lab. China is the source of the COVID-19 um, virus that has been spreading around, right? It comes out of Wuhan, China. Um, something fishy seems to be going on. You, the executive, report back to parliament. Tell us what the, what in the world is going on. And, and the executive refused to do so. Prime Minister uh, Trudeau said, no, no, we're not. We're not reporting to you. Uh, that's confidential. That's sensitive information. As if, as if uh, the executive was was above Parliament. Hmm. And um, and when that happened, the, the, actually, the Speaker of the House, for the first time since 1913, found the Liberal government in contempt of Parliament. It's a, an extraordinary thing. And and said and ordered the the minister, the deputy minister in, in the executive branch of government ordered that person to produce the documents that parliament was asking for. And so that, that person does show up at parliament. He's called to the bar at, 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 in parliament to, to appear before parliament and produce these documents. So he does, he comes with the documents, but they're completely redacted. He's removed all of the information. So they're completely useless. <laughs> and so this guy too is found in contempt of parliament. And, and so, so it's heating up in, in parliament. There's obviously like to me, this is a constitutional crisis. Like, like they've forgotten the glorious revolution. The executive is responsible to Parliament. They have to answer to Parliament. Um, and so, as the tension is building, this is happening in June of 2021. Uh, Mr. Trudeau is like, oh, I can't take the heat anymore, and he calls calls an election. And I think he was hoping for a majority government out of that election because if he has an, a majority government, he can control a majority of the members of parliament, and this whole crisis will, will go away. Um, uh, unfortunately for him, uh, more fortunate for the people of Canada, mm-hmm. is that he came back with a, with a minority government again. In fact, I think the, the seat count was, was almost exactly the same. I think there was only a, a two-seat difference after the election. 
So, so that didn't work. But then he worked out a deal with the NDP, uh, Canada's Socialist um, Party, and and the NDP has has now agreed to basically support the Liberal Party in in all things in in exchange for a few uh, uh, shiny trinkets in in the budget. Right. And and so now. Parliament is not holding the executive accountable on this matter. Yeah, so it's, got an effective it's questionable majority. whether or not we'll ever get to the bottom of this, which again is a which is a travesty from a constitutional perspective. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Andre, really appreciate you taking uh, taking us through that uh, that history uh, all the way down into uh, contemporary history here in Canada, close to home. Uh, for for those who might just be might just be waking up to the reality of what's what's at stake here. Uh, what? Uh, how should we then live? What do we? What do mm. we do? Uh, having heard this, right? Yeah, I think that. Um, so one thing is 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 to be thankful for all all those who went before us. Like to have mm. a, a true and genuine appreciation for the terror, sacrifice, bloodshed. Uh, uh, investment that that so many people before us put into fighting for for the freedoms for the accountable government that we have have today. I mean, we we still have it relatively good as concerning as the developments I've talked about are, but but our posture should should at least be thankfulness to God for the for the faithful Christians who are willing to sacrifice so much in order to insist on accountable government. And insist on the ability for for individuals and and various institutions of society, including the church and the family and uh, the academy and the and the free press and so on, to be able to do the things that they have been called to do uh, to keep the government accountable um, and and to uh, yeah and to fulfill their calling as um, as citizens in a country, right? So so we should be thankful first of all for all of that sacrifice that went before us. But the second thing I think we need to do is is then be informed. Like we need to know uh, our history. If we're not learning it in school, then we have to do the extra work ourselves to, mm. to learn about it a little bit more. You know, politics, uh, politics is not like a, like a little side thing that you can be, you can do if you're really interested in it. Like sort of like, you know, some people do uh, a bit of quilting or they're into some other hobby. Like politics is not a hobby. It's a, right. it's, it's a responsibility of every citizen. So just like, you know, being a member of your family, an active member of your family is not an option. You're called as a father or you're called as a mother or you're called as a child to be an active member of your family. You have come that comes with responsibilities. Likewise, uh, the same is true about the church, right? If you're a member of the church, you have responsibilities to your church. There's benefits that come from being a member of your church. You're blessed by the preached word. You're blessed by the help and support of fellow church members. You're blessed by the discipling of your elders. But likewise, you have an obligation you have responsibilities to the church as well you need to contribute back to it likewise then also as a citizen there comes much blessing from citizenship but also responsibility and if we as christian citizens don't take up that mantle of responsibility if we don't take on the office of citizenship uh, then we're not doing what we're called to do we're abdicating our responsibility and our, and our calling so so part of that is education teaching ourselves about our our history about our our laws about accountable governments about being informed about elections about informing fellow citizens about what's what's at stake in elections and so on um and then i guess the third thing i would say is that um uh that, that we need to then 
yeah, just get engaged, like, like not just learn about, you know, the past, learn about our history, learn about uh, laws and legal developments, but then actually engage. And, and I think that if you look at the, the recent Ontario election, uh, one of the news stories that came out of the Ontario election from June, uh, June 2022 mm-hmm. was that the number of people that didn't vote vastly outnumbered the people who did vote. I think it was 57% of eligible voters did not vote. That's right. And, and that's just, that's just voting, right? That's just like, you know, taking some time out of one day every four years to go to a polling station, scribble a little X on a ballot and stuff it in a box. Like that's all we're talking about. It's like the, the, the least we can do as a citizen. Right. And even yeah. so, you know, 57% of eligible voters couldn't even be bothered to do that. So as, but as Christians, I'd say we're called to do way more than that. Like that's a basic minimum, but we, we should be doing much more than that. And and so this actually came up in discussion here at Runner Academy last night, is is that, you know, uh, your Christian duty is not not just to vote. I'd say your Christian duty is to try to get at least 10 people to vote just like you. So so but in order to do that, you need to know why it matters to vote at all and why it matters to vote for the particular person you want to vote for. And so um, by by thinking about it, not like my job is to go vote, but instead thinking about the question as my job is to get other people to vote just like me, that forces you to engage as a Christian, not just with the ideas, uh, the issues that are at stake, but also to engage with other citizens to, to see the issues as you see them, but also to hear from other citizens how, what they might think about the issue. So maybe they're an apathetic citizen and, and, and you're completely educating them for the first time. Or they might be a citizen who thinks very differently from you and you're forced to engage with them. And that's the way it used to be. Like if you read some history books, like read, uh, I read a, um, a biography of Abraham Lincoln a, a couple of years ago. And one of the things that, that surprised me the most was just how much the citizens in the time of Abraham Lincoln were engaged in the political process. Like, like they didn't just vote once every four years. Like they would turn out to town halls and debates and read the newspaper every day. And the newspapers were full of the political issues of the day where, where they didn't just report on it with a, you know, a CBC slant of, of liberalism. Mm-hmm. They reported mm-hmm. on what's actually at stake, why it matters. They, they would publish both sides of the debate. Newspapers were packed full of um, like, like the, the, the number of words that Abraham Lincoln, for example, would write in a political speech that was published in a newspaper, but would fill six newspapers, uh, like newspaper sheets full. And then, so, and people would read that. They would sit down in the morning, open up the newspaper and read six pages full of newsprint. That's Abraham Lincoln's speech. And then they'd turn it over and read another, you know, three, four or five pages of his opponent and what he believed. And, and they'd talk about it at work and they'd talk about it in the marketplace and they'd um, discuss and debate. They were engaged citizens, and today we're we are not at all engaged. We are um, we are entertained citizens. We're passive citizens, and we need to we need to push push back and through that. I'd say that that's so so important. So the good news coming out of the Ontario election is, if there's 57 percent of people who are apathetic and they don't care at all, well, the good news is if if the 10 to 15 percent of Ontarians who are Christians actually do the the work of engaging, we actually can shift that number in a big, big way. It doesn't take a, it takes a lot of people to elect a particular party to government, but it actually takes less than you think because there are so many who are apathetic and don't care and don't follow uh, what's going on. So if we, if we do the work, if we step up, we can make a difference by the blessing of God. Right. Well, that's a, uh, that's an encouragement. Uh, it's an exhortation to uh, 
to good work and responsible citizenship. Mm-hmm. Andre, I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us on the podcast today. From all of us here at the Ezra Institute and the podcast for cultural reformation, we remind you that from him and through him and to him are all things, and we will be with you again next week. God be with you.